0: Hey, this is Howard Jacobson, and I am really delighted and excited to be talking with today's guest, Dr. Milton Mills, who is Associate Director of Preventive Medicine for the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and also a, continue, a critical care physician in the Washington, D.C. area. Welcome, Dr. Mills.
1: Thank you very much. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, I've been excited about this call since I watched a video uh, of a talk you gave i don 't know some some weeks or months ago and i'll we'll we 'll get into the topic of that but first i 'd love to to begin by uh by just getting a sense of of your your story and your journey to uh to a plant based diet did you did you grow up eating that way or did something <coughs> happen along the way
1: sure uh no actually i did not grow up um uh, uh eating a plant i mean um as a vegetarian or vegan, um, you know, my my parents are from the south, and so, um, while, um, they, you know, my mother always cooked, uh, nutritious meals, I mean, they were very traditional meals that were always centered around, um, or, or usually centered around, you know, some form of animal flesh, and, you know, be it chicken, beef, or pork, or whatever. But, um, when I was uh, uh, a teenager, I began studying with the uh, Seventh Day Adventist Church, and um, uh, because I was looking for, uh, you know, um, a source of truth, and I started reading the Bible, and then looking to see what denomination I felt was um, most closely adhering to what the Bible actually encouraged us to do, and that turned out to be the Some of the Adventist Church. And for those of your listeners who aren't aware of it, the Some of the Adventist Church encourages its members to become vegetarian. It's not a requirement, but uh, it, they do encourage it as being um, a more natural and healthful diet for human beings. Um, and after. Uh, I would say for a little over a year after I became, um, uh, joined the church, I, you know, I didn't, I I didn't embrace a plant based diet because I just didn't think I could live without eating meat. But, um, as I progressed in my sort of spiritual experience and relationship with God, it got to the point where I was having some struggles and, and I was dialoguing with God about it one evening and he, Say to me very clearly: If you want a closer relationship with me, you need uh, a clearer mind, and for that, you need to have a better diet. You have to give up eating meat, and so that really was the uh, impetus for me to change my diet. It was, you know, not just the the health uh, aspects, but it was also the the spiritual aspects, knowing that with a, uh, a better diet and a clearer mind, I would have, uh, uh, closer, uh, communication with God.
0: So how, how did you, how did you go about eliminating meat? Was it just after that conversation you just stopped? You know, how, how, how did that happen?
1: Um, yeah, essentially, yes. Um, I was, uh, 16 at the time and, uh, you know, I had a uh, close group of friends who we were all in the church and studying together. And, um, it's interesting because I was living with my father. Um, uh, my parents had divorced and I was living with my father at the time. And I think he thought I was kind of going through a phase that I would eventually get out, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, grow tired of. And, and his, uh, his statement to me when I told him I was going to be vegetarian was, well, If you're going to eat differently, I'm not cooking anything different. So you're on your own. Um, And uh, um, for quite a while, I sort of subsisted on peanut butter, honey, and whole wheat sandwiches. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, uh, um, eventually I I, I learned more about cooking and about uh, making sure that you know i was getting balanced nutrition and, and 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 certainly out of that uh grew my uh interest in medicine and health and nutrition and and so it, it all kind of uh, uh um worked together to sort of get me where to where i am today
0: so did you find even with peanut butter and honey and uh and whole wheat that you had more clarity than your previous diet oh.
1: Oh, there's no question. I mean, after, and, and, you know, in addition, I mean, I'm, I was eating, like, you know, when my dad would, uh, fix meals, I mean, I would eat the, 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 the plant portion of the meals. you know, be it beans and rice or, you know, the vegetables, the corn, the salad, and all that. I, I just wouldn't touch, you know, the, the, the animal flesh portion of it. Um, but I, I immediately noticed, um, several things. One, I, I had a, I had a lot more energy. Uh, two, I did have, um, uh, just, um, a clearer mind and, and sort of, uh, I felt, um, a more agile mind. Um, I, I required less sleep. Um, and, uh, again, being a teenager, almost overnight, my acne cleared up. Um, I, I just, I no longer had a problem, you know, I mean, outside of the occasional, you know, uh uh bumped out of a rise here and there, but but as far as just sort of the chronic problems with acne, that all went away. And uh and I immediately felt a difference in just the way not only my mind worked, but how my body felt and functioned.
0: Mm. So you you um you got into this way of eating through the, the Seventh day Adventist Church and there's a lot of people who have found their way into plant-based diets, but they feel like they're sort of on their own.
1: They don't. Mm-hmm. They don't
0: have a community. And you know, I've told people like it's very the, our, the, the standard American diet is very unnatural.
1: But it absolutely is.
0: But eating in a way that's different from all your peers is equally unnatural. So it seems like you you were able to find a way to get a good diet and a community, a sort of a, a normal group of people around so that what you were doing was normal within your community.
1: Certainly. And but and, and I guess one of the other things that Christianity taught me is that um when you choose to do what's right it is frequently going to put you into the minority. But that that is not something that one should allow oneself to feel intimidated by because um we are frequently put uh in various places you know over the course of our lives to be a signpost and a and a and a uh an example to others and so you know the fact that you know for instance, when I started working, I was usually the only vegetarian uh there or you know in school and in college and so forth um that that didn't Bother me because I realized that I was there for a reason to help people bring knowledge to people that they didn't have and to help them understand that there were alternatives to, you know, the way people usually ate and consequently the kinds of health issues people would have as a consequence of what they were eating and to help people understand that, you know, you didn't have to constantly feel tired and run down and sick, and and you didn't have to spend your life waiting on your heart to seize up and stop working, that if you change your diet and your lifestyle, you could, you know, significantly reduce the risk of these things happening. Mm
0: -hmm. So, um, and I... I think that that's the easiest way from people that I've seen who have successfully transitioned to a plant-based diet or a wholly vegan diet, um, is that either they are part of some community, they find a community where they feel mm-hmm. supported and normal as they do it, or they feel like a lot of ethical vegans feel. I think the same way you do that they're some they're somehow a, a witness for something for for something they believe in, and that they're they're being apart from culture actually is why they're there.
1: Right. Uh, and, and I and I have to say things have changed, I mean, just incredibly, uh, since, you know, since I, I um uh, uh you know made my diet change as a teenager. I mean that was over thirty years ago. And um uh back then um when you said that you're vegetarian or someone they looked at you um... like you were some sort of deviant and if you actually said the word vegan people would think you were speaking a foreign language and there weren't all of the uh... various you know options that are available now either in the supermarket and certainly not in restaurants and 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 so on and 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 all of that has changed you know in an amazing way i mean everybody now knows what would what, what, um veganism is and and um and what vegetarians are and you know you find options on in, uh, in almost any restaurant you step into and of course the uh, grocery store is filled with a variety of different uh food options uh, for 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 people so uh and then you know with the internet, even if you can't find someone in your immediate vicinity who shares your dietary practices. There are online communities that, that you can uh, become part of, a part of to to sort of get that uh, support and social networking that you may not have in your immediate environment.
0: Right. So, you know, one, I don't know that much about Seventh Day Adventists. Um, I've been learning more uh, through the, uh, the concept of the Blue Zones, and I guess mm-hmm. the, the Seventh-day Adventist community in Loma Linda, California, is one of the healthiest, longest-living communities in, in the entire world. Um, it makes me wonder, you know, if, if I were just going to start at church, like if I wanted to eat, people to eat better, I think I would just start at church. It seems so much easier than uh, <laughs> than trying well, to just, just get them on sort of rational grounds.
1: Right. Well, you know, it, it's very, I mean, to me it, it's, it's, it's kind of very straightforward and, and, and almost axiomatic in that, I mean, if any of us goes out and, say, buys a car or some other major appliance, we expect it to come with an owner's manual telling us how to take care of it, what fuel to put into it, you know, and, and so forth. And, um, I mean, for people who believe uh, in God's existence and, and, you know, who know, who, you know, who are uh, uh, fortunate and blessed to have a relationship with him, I mean, you know that the Bible is his guidebook for us. And it says right up front in the very beginning Genesis 129, when he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he told them what to eat. And he told them to be vegans, actually. It wasn't even vegetarians. Um, they were um, eating a primarily fruit-based diet. And once, um, you know, uh, as you read through Genesis and kind of sin entered the picture and they were forced to leave the garden, their diet was enlarged to include um, um Plant foods referred to as the plants of the field, which um, uh, uh, one can infer to include your grains, uh, legumes, uh, vegetables, and so on. Uh, and those those are foods that had formerly been reserved uh, uh, only for the animals. Well, now that the, uh, uh, humans were to eat those too, to ha- again have that. Um, more varied and, and broad based and balanced diet, mm-hmm.
0: and so for for um, for someone who who may not um, be a literal Bible reader, would you say that that mirrors kind of what we know about the evolution of the human diet over time?
1: Well, it it I mean it it absolutely well it certainly corresponds with what science tells us is. Without question, the best diet for human beings, and that's a plant-based diet. As you alluded to with Seven Day um, the, uh, are, you know, some of the Adventists, they are some of the longest lived people on the planet. And in all of the studies that have looked at longevity and diet around the world, those populations that consume an, either an entirely or predominantly plant-based diet, are the populations that not only live the longest, but have the lowest risk for chronic diseases. Um, and in terms of evolutionary theory, um, it, when you look at the, uh, fossils and, and, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, I guess you would say, uh, creatures that are, believed by many uh, anthropologists to have given rise to uh, uh, the human species, what's clear from looking at their body habitus, their dentition, and their jaw structure is that they were uh, um, eating a plant-based diet because they were completely ill-equipped to to either hunt, kill, or dismember and consume uh, animal foods. and then more importantly, when you look at, if you're going to follow the, the, the idea that, you know, there were a variety of different organisms that gave rise to modern human beings, then you can sort of work backwards to try and uh uh, uh infer what the diet of the sort of pre- and proto-humans uh, and hominids were. And when you look at the fact that modern humans, again, have an anatomy and physiology that is completely consistent with consuming an entirely plant-based diet, Um, and we have the physiologic characteristics that are typical for uh, mammals that consume uh, an entirely plant-based diet, that tells you that anything that gave rise to us had to also have consumed a plant-based diet, because it makes no sense that some creature that was eating a predominantly flesh food diet would suddenly give rise to a species that was adapted to eat entirely plant foods. If you understand my my reasoning, that just doesn't follow. Um, And uh, I I, um, have done a lot of work in Looking and, and research into looking uh, um, at um, at compared anatomy, comparative anatomy uh, um, uh, between car- mammalian carnivores and mammalian herbivores and humans to show that uh, human beings have the anatomy and physiology of a committed herbivore; so that we don't have the uh, characteristics that are uh, found in either the carnivores or the uh, true omnivores like bears and raccoons and so forth they have very different physiology very different anatomy from ours
0: could, could you uh, kind of give us the the cliff notes on that because my paleo friends all tell me look we have you know carnivorous eyes binocular oh, eyes
1: nonsense.
0: and we have uh, we have uh, teeth for, for ripping. What, uh, help, help us help us sure. uh, understand well, well, those, okay. those arguments in context? Fine. Let,
1: let's 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 just let's talk about eyes, for instance. It is true that human beings have um, forward set eyes, which gives us binocular vision, which is very useful for depth perception. And when you look at your uh, uh, typical mammalian carnivore, they also have uh, binocular. Uh, vision for good depth perception, but that's pretty much where the similarities between our eyes and carnivore eyes end. And to say that simply because we have binocular vision, that means that we are meant to be predators is like saying that because a hummingbird has wings, it's meant to be a raptor like an eagle. Yes, (laughs) a hummingbird has wings, but it uses it for very different things. And, yes, we have binocular vision, but we use it for very different purposes than your typical carnivore. When you actually look inside the eye of human beings, you see their eyes are completely different from those of of carnivores. Carnivores' eyes are um, made up primarily of what are called rod photoreceptors. And what's notable about rod photoreceptors is that they're designed for night vision. And that makes sense because carnivores are trying to hunt at night when their prey species are sleeping because that means that they will expend less energy capturing and killing their food than if they ran around trying to chase them down during the day. Furthermore, all carnivores have a reflective layer at the back of their eye called the tapetum, which is a mirror-like surface that helps Amplify low light levels and again that's so that they will be able to see well in the dark and hunt. Um, they typically see six times better uh, than we do. They have like permanent night vision goggles but what's really interesting is that in the human eye uh, our most acute vision is um, located in an area of the eye called the fovea which is actually a dimple or pit at the back of the eye that has a very high concentration of what are called cone photoreceptors and it's the cone photoreceptors that give you very precise uh, uh, um, vision but also that allow you to see in color. Carnivores don't have color vision. They don't have a phobia. Instead of a phobia, they have an area in the back of their retina called a linear streak which is literally a line of cells across the back of the retina that whenever anything moves across that linear streak, they are hardwired to chase it. And that's what allows them to essentially become uh, um, very good pursuit predators. And when they see something moving, they chase it and try to pounce on it and kill it because, of course, if something is moving in nature, it's probably alive and it can probably be eaten. But, again, very different eyes from ours. They don't see in color. They don't have very good precision vision. They don't have a fovea. Um, and they are, their eyes are more adapted for seeing at night. So, yes, we have, we have binocular vision, but we have very different types of vision. And, of course, uh, the purpose of having color vision is so that you can tell when plant foods are ripe enough to eat because um, many edible plant parts, such as fruits and, and seed pots and so forth, in their unripened state are loaded with um, uh, toxins and other compounds to keep animals from eating them before they're ripened, because what the plant really is trying to get you to do is spread its seeds. So it doesn't want the fruit or the seed pot to be eaten before the seed has matured, because that would in effect, um, work at cross-purposes with what it's trying to achieve. It wants you to wait until the seed is full and mature so that when you eat the fruit, swallow the seed, you will actually carry it some distance from the parent plant and then deposit it with its own little dollop of fertilizer.
0: (laughs) They're they're pretty smart, aren't they?
1: Yes, they are. Um, And then when it comes to teeth, Um, Carnivore jaws actually function and operate like a pair of shears, meaning that their molars are not flattened and nodular like um, the plant eaters' molars. They're actually shaped like blades, serrated knife blades. And the um, um, molars in the upper jaw slide completely past the molars in the lower jaw in a vertical Uh, plane, and that gives you a nice slicing motion, which of course is important if you're going to be dismembering prey, slicing meat off bones, and cracking bones in two. Whereas for herbivores, the jaws don't slide past each other in a horizontal plane, they actually slide across each other in a horizontal plane. To give you the mo- the uh, motion of grinding, and that's because plant foods have a lot of fiber in them, and have to be uh, the tissues of the plants have to be disrupted and torn apart so that the uh, digestive enzymes can actually get at the uh, extractable nutrients that are contained in the plant tissues. So as a result, all herbivores chew their food very thoroughly to mix it up with digestive enzymes and have the process of digestion begin actually in the mouth. Carnivores don't chew their food. They slice off a chunk of meat, swallow it whole, and then the digestion occurs uh, in the stomach and small intestine. And, in fact, um, if you look at the um, ear, nose, and throat literature, you will find that 90% of the people who choke to death every year choke to death eating, trying to eat meat and it's because we don't have the teeth and the, uh, or the esophagus to either process or swallow the stuff um, very efficiently. And that's why we have to use things like knives and forks and, and all these other utensils to try and cut up and shred uh, these, these animal tissues so that we can uh, essentially ingest them without killing ourselves.
0: <laughs> so I, I assume the... Uh and the anatomical differences also continue in the digestive system? That oh, certainly. There, there's differences?
1: A- yeah, absolutely. Um, carnivores have, hunting um, uh, in nature is a very inefficient process. Most carnivores will only make a kill every seven to ten days. Studies show that 90 to 95% of their hunting efforts are uh, unsuccessful. And so the question naturally arises, how on earth can an animal that uh, fails to get a meal, 90% of the time it makes an attempt, possibly survive? Well, the way that they are able to survive is the fact that they have gigantic stomachs in comparison uh, to uh, your typical plant eater. The, uh, a, a typical carnivore has a stomach that will hold up to 30% of its body weight in food. And so what that means is that a 50-kilogram wolf can eat up to 15 kilograms of meat in one sitting. Um, A 300-pound lioness can eat uh, 90 to 100 pounds of meat in one sitting. But let's just look at the wolf because, you know, uh, human beings are – uh average adult is some uh who is a normal weight and not overweight will be somewhere between 60 to 70 kilograms well that would mean that you would have to be able to eat 18 kilograms of food at one meal which is absolutely impossible and a kilogram weighs 2.2 pounds so you're talking about 35 to 40 pounds of food at one sitting that's impossible no, uh, but for a carnivore, it's absolutely necessary because they have to be able to ingest enough calories at a, m- a single meal to recover all of the energy they expended in the unsuccessful hunts as well as the one successful hunt as well as ingest enough calories to last them until they're able to get enough- another meal. And because they are actually able to eat rotting flesh, and that's why they will frequently cover up a carcass with dirt and leaves and guard it for several days they can extract additional energy from that carcass uh because they are not at all bothered by eating rotting maggot laden bacteria laden tissue they have the stomach acid and the and the um immune system to uh handle all of that those uh um Uh, toxic uh, uh, bacteria and protozoa and so forth whereas human beings we don't people get sick from eating poorly cooked turkey and there's no way we can eat rotting tissue without killing ourselves furthermore like all herbivores we are batch feeders meaning that we have a stomach that is relatively small is designed for ingesting uh, um, a meal processing that meal, and then you have to go back and eat another meal um, in order to get enough calories to last you one day, you cannot possibly eat enough to last you 10 days. So all herbivores actually eat uh, two or more meals every single day in order to get enough calories to live on, whereas carnivores, because they have these giant stomachs, can eat once every seven to 10 days and they'll be fine and then they have a liver which can process that sort of huge giant calorie load without developing what's called steatohepatitis or fatty liver uh, disease which when human beings ingest too many calories or very rich diets we easily develop fatty liver and that leads to all sorts of problems can lead to cirrhosis can um, raise your risk for developing liver cancer and uh stones and a number of other problems. Um, moving along the digestive tract, the small intestine in uh, carnivores is very short, typically about four to six times the body length, whereas in herbivores, it's uh, 10 to 12 times the body length. And your average um, small intestine in a human being is about 30 feet long, and Uh, People sometimes say, "Oh, well, wait a minute. That's not ten times the body length," because they're thinking of you know measuring body length as head to foot. That's not how you measure body length. You measure body length from head to tailbone, and the average torso size in a human being is two and a half to three feet. So again, we all we have the classic proportions of your typical herbivore, and then when you look at the large intestine, the large intestine in humans. Is, uh, is is fairly long. It uh, has a pouched or sacculated structure, which is again typical of herbivores. And we have an appendix. Um, you only find the appendix in plant-eating mammals. Carnivores do not have an appendix. So, again, and and these are just some highlights of, of the differences. I mean, I could literally lecture for hours on. Uh, uh, the details of the differences between carnivores and herbivores, but what's, what's, what's crystal clear is that human beings have the anatomy and physiology of a plant eater. We are not designed to eat uh, um, uh, flesh foods, and when we do, it leads to disease, and that's why it's associated with uh, heart disease, higher rates of cancer, higher rates of diabetes, and, uh, uh, and also linked to several autoimmune, uh, uh, type diseases.
0: So you, you see meat eating, the, the evolution of meat eating in humans as kind of a, an emergency fuel?
1: It, 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 exactly. I, I think that, um, human beings, um, um, and actually what's very interesting is that, uh, both sort of uh, kind of evolutionary theory in the Bible, uh, agree that, uh, human beings originated, um, in equatorial, uh, uh, um, sort of Africa slash Middle East, where you have, um, abundant plant foods year round. But as humans migrated into, uh, more northern, uh, latitudes or, or even, even southern latitudes that were further away from the equator, you got into temperate regions where plant foods weren't available year-round. And that is when you start to see human beings developing the technologies to hunt animals so that they could use them for the calories that weren't available from the plant foods during the uh, winter months. Hmm. So, So yes, it was more of a bridge to, to, uh, to help us, you know, uh, through the times when our principal foods weren't available. But, you know, as always, when you're dealing with human cultures, you evolve a culture to support a practice, and then the culture takes on a life of its own. And um, the m- the best analogy I can come up with is that, you know, I ask people why is it that, um, you know, women will go out and spend, you know, thousands, sometimes even tens of thousands of dollars on a big white wedding dress, um, that serves absolutely no practical purpose. It doesn't restore her hymen, doesn't make anybody forget how many boyfriends that we've all, <laughs> seen, that she's had, but it's become a cultural, uh, imperative, and that's why we do it. You know, and it's the same reason 40 year old guys go out and buy some, you know, little red sports car, because they they think it's going to somehow make them more appealing and more attractive, although it has absolutely no practical uh, uh, survival advantages.
0: Right. It's just a, uh, a social signal. A... Exactly. <clears throat> <laughs> well, this is really fascinating, and I didn't realize we were going to get into this. Um, I... I have so many more questions about the, this, but I think we 're giving people enough of uh, of an overview but i I will state that you know in uh, in the book the, uh, that I helped Dr. Campbell write whole, we have a chapter on reductionist versus holistic research mm-hmm. to, uh, because there 's lots of reductionist research that 's out there that seems to point to animal pro- products being good for humans but when we look at the you know one of one of the sources of holistic research what we listed was evolutionary biology in which we say you know we have we share almost all the characteristics of herbivores and have almost nothing in common with carnivores Um, when we were writing when I was writing that bit I wish I'd known you because I could have put in a lot more detail Um, but to me that just it seems like a common-sense observation, a common-sense set of observations. Like, if this is true, then we can't be obligate meat-eaters. We simply can't be. No, absolutely.
1: I mean, mean, what what, uh, research tells us is that no matter how much fat and cholesterol you feed to dogs and cats and other carnivores, they never, ever develop coronary artery disease. They never develop blockages in their arteries. Because they have a lipoprotein metabolism that allows them to essentially dispose of all of this fat and cholesterol that they absorb from their gut. But when you turn around and feed diets that are high in fat and cholesterol to classic herbivores like rabbits, rodents, and humans, and other primates, we very easily and relatively quickly begin to develop a hardening of the arteries because... We are not designed to eat that type of a diet.
0: Wow. Don't don't say that too loud, or else some drug company is going to start harvesting, you know, tiger enzymes for into pills, so we can uh, we can eat meat without uh, hardening of the arteries.
1: Well, you know, the, the actually the the tragedy is that you know that um, one of the reason pe- reasons that bears are often killed is because their gallbladders are used in. Uh, traditional uh, Chinese medicine and, and, and other uh, uh, um, folk medicines to treat um, gallstones. And the reason it will treat gallstones is that the majority of gallstones that human beings get are made up of cholesterol that has precipitated out of our bile and formed stones. And bear bile is so strong that w- if it's ingested by humans, it's concentrated into our gallbladder, where it can actually dissolve the gallstones, because that's what they're designed to do. Is to eat that kind of a diet, but we don't have to kill bears to do that because we now have drugs which will do the same thing. So it's no, it's not not that it was ever necessary, but it certainly isn't, you know, in this day and age. But um, no, the, rather than destroying the earth to try and support. An abnormal uh, lifestyle, such as uh, meat eating and so forth, it makes much more sense to instead switch to the diet that we are designed to eat in the first place, that promotes the best health, the greatest longevity, and leave the other stuff alone. You know, I, I, you know, one thing that I say in just about all my lectures is, I tell people that nobody ever asked for a fried chicken or a pork chop in the delivery room. When we are born as babies we are born without preferences. Everything that we think we like we had to learn to like and just as we have learned to like things that are unhealthy and that uh, harm our health, we can unlearn, unlearn those bad habits and learn to like the foods that are actually good for us instead.
0: Right, and then in my experience, that's absolutely true. Um, So I don't, I don't want to let you go without getting to the the topic that that fascinated me so much when I saw your video. Um, So you you are uh, African American, yeah, um, and you have have written um, about the uh, you know sort of racist elements of the, the the the
1: food. Dietary guidelines. Dietary correct.
0: guidelines. But you, right. so you, the talk you gave. So you're, you're very interested in sort of this intersection of of, of food, nutrition, um, and and race and class. You talked about the um, the Afri- this, uh, what's come to be thought of as a traditional African American diet, especially in the American South, right. is, as actually being a slave diet. Correct which, correct, which blew my mind. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure,
1: sure, I'd be very happy to. Um, and it, it all uh, revolves around this this topic of what I call so-called soul food, and um, what people refer to as soul food classically includes uh, dishes like um, chitlins and and oxtails and pig's feet and and pig ears, and and all of these uh, uh, very, very unhealthy um, um, types of of, of flesh foods that uh, we know promote excess disease within communities of color, particularly within the African-American community. And unfortunately, many African-Americans embrace this because they feel like, oh, this is our cultural heritage, this is soul food, when in fact, it's not our cultural heritage. And what I... Try to help people understand is that when you look at traditional West African diets traditional West African diets and the reason I keep emphasizing traditional is because of course um, unfortunately um, many of these large uh, uh, um, um, fast food concerns have you know they're exporting their their lifestyle their 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 uh, restaurants around the world and and in you know a lot of the large urban areas in Af- and and so the major African cities, you can find McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken and, and all that stuff over there too, uh, over there now as well. But when you look at traditional West African diets that haven't been corrupted by Western habits, those diets are diets that are are largely plant-based diets, low in fat they are based around greens, legumes and root vegetables. They contain no dairy foods and very little meat. Um, and that is what our true heritage is. It is for for um, and the reason it's it's uh, I focus on West Africa is that because that's where the uh pop, uh american slaves were, were taken from. They were taken from the western coast of Africa and the uh, peoples that lived there. Uh, and so, again, we come from populations that traditionally ate a very low-fat, plant-based diet. But when the slaves were brought over to the American plantations, they were literally forced to eat the garbage of the plantations. So the, the things that the... Slave owners didn 't want to eat, such as the entrails which became chitlins or the the tails of of the pigs or the or the uh, 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 cattle which became oxtails or their ears or their feet, all of that stuff that they used to throw away they turned they gave to the slaves and said, "Here, you eat this, this is what 's going to be your food and you know of course, the slaves did the best that they could with Trying to take this garbage and turn it into something edible, but the tragedy is that once slavery ended, instead of us as uh, African Americans rejecting what is truly uh, an echo and and uh, uh, vestige of plantation life, we turned around and owned it and called it soul food. it 's not soul food; it is plantation food, and it 's very unhealthy and it causes excess rate of disease in our community and it's killing us at, at very early ages and we need to get away from it.
0: So I I recently read that um you know uh, Sandra Nation the uh, African American woman who is featured in the in the documentary Forks Over Knives uh-huh. um, who you know lost 100 pounds on a plant-based diet and and reversed her diabetes that uh, she got a lot of grief from her friends and family for eating what they called uh, white people's food. <laughs> um, so when you when you bring this message to African American communities to church groups, what what response do you get? Do, do you get pushback, or do people's eyes open? And, and well, they... I
1: think because I start off with you talking about what our true true heritage is, and that is looking back to, to West Africa. And looking at what traditional West African diets are, people are able to understand a lot more clearly that this has nothing to do uh, with being white people's food. I mean, it may be that here in you know in the United States, because um, you know Caucasian Americans tend to be more affluent and have better access to grocery stores and you know fresh fruits and vegetables that they tend to eat better in this country. But that's an artifact of the economic uh, and social situations that we find ourselves in. It has nothing to do with, you know, it being uh, uh, something that is uh, particularly germane to, you know, to only white Americans. Um, And so, again, that's why I try to point people back to traditional West African diets to make them understand that this is where our gene pool comes from, this is the diet that we adapted to, these are the diets that promote the best health within our community. And then to also help them understand that, you know, Africans, traditional West Africans don't eat uh, this crap that we call soul food, and that this is a direct link to plantation life, because that's where we learn to eat this stuff, not in Africa, but on the plantation. And in fact, the last vestiges of sla- slavery we are carrying around with us on our dinner plates.
0: <laughs> yeah, my my thought was that you know, for for your audiences to hear this would would feel like liberation, like a final you know a final cutting of the cord.
1: It, it, I, I mean, for people who are ready to to hear it, it it, it, it certainly can be very liberating. But the, the one thing that I've come to understand about you know. Um, us as humans is that uh, food for us is far more than than simple nutrition. Um, it, it it there are you know aspects of of cultural identity of of a family and so forth that are bound up with not only what we eat but the ways that we eat, and that frequently when you talk to people about the need to change their diet that they will have a an emotional and not rational response to um um to what you're suggesting because in in talking about the you know uh, leaving uh, you know leaving the the ways in which they are used to eating and preparing their foods um you're essentially telling them that you've got to in some respects. Sever your ties to grandma, to to your mother, to uh, you know your traditional uh, uh, family holiday celebrations, and and so forth, and and uh, uh, so you know people have to understand that you can make these changes and still be true to yourself, uh, you know from you know an ethnic standpoint because you can, um, in essence, veganize. Um, you know many traditional uh, uh, foods that are are served you know as, as cultural icons and cultural dishes so that you can preserve that cultural identity, but you preserve it in a way that promotes health as opposed to destroying it
0: right I know when I, when I moved down to North Carolina from New Jersey, I had never seen collard greens in the supermarket like they were mm-hmm. kind of a specialty item, and here are giant bags of collards.
1: Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And, you know,
0: that's, that's a, uh you know, a sort of a traditional African-American food that yeah. was far superior to anything I was eating.
1: I was going to say, yeah, and let me hasten to say, that is one of the traditional uh, uh, uh parts of, of what is traditionally considered soul food that is actually extremely healthy. So you can eat all the collard greens you want. You just don't have to put, put the ham hocks in and bacon fat in them to uh give them flavor there are other ways to do that um so that they are much healthier uh for you but um the coll- the degrees themselves are actually very healthy foods and should be eaten as often as, as as possible by everyone
0: right so before before we go how are the dietary guidelines of the United States racist
1: well um they <laughs> And, and actually uh, a couple different ways. And and I, I think one of the things that uh, it's important for people to understand uh, is that when I first started working with PCRM, one of the first projects I worked on with them was uh, looking at trying to uh, get changes in the uh, U.S. dietary guidelines. and And I came to that project with the mistaken notion that the U.S. Dietary Guidelines were put out by the Department of uh, Health and Human Services, HHS. And that, in fact, is not the case. The U.S. Dietary Guidelines are put out by the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture. And the USDA has as its primary charge that its job is to increase the market for U.S. uh, agricultural output. And so, as a result, the Dietary Guidelines have always been very heavily weighted towards encouraging the consumption of dairy foods and other animal-based foods because that is what many of the U.S., uh, largest U.S. uh, agribusinesses and farmers are actually producing, even though... The USDA has known for years that the science does not support the consumption of these foods because, in fact, they do increase uh, a number of different chronic diseases. Well, let's just look at dairy foods, for instance. The fact is that the vast majority of, Amer- of, the, of Americans of color are lactose intolerant. It turns out that uh, 73% of African Americans... 70% of Native Americans, 95% of Asian Americans, and 53% of Hispanic Americans are lactose intolerant, meaning that if they ingest lactose-containing foods, they will end up with gas, bloating, diarrhea, and other forms of uh, gastrointestinal distress from because they can't uh, digest and absorb the lactose that's in the milk. Um, and you contrast that with the fact that on average only about thirty to thirty two percent of caucasian americans have a problem ingesting lactose Well, um, so then why are people being encouraged to consume dairy foods well then people say well you have to get your calcium that's utter nonsense you don't need dairy foods to get calcium calcium is distributed through a number of, of plant foods i often point out to people cows don't uh... drink milk or eat dairy foods yet there's plenty of calcium in their milk. Why? Because they get it from green leafy vegetables which is the same place that we can get it from and we can get it in a much healthier form. It doesn't come with all this fat and excess protein that creates disease. So the fact is that people are encouraged to eat dairy foods not because for health reasons because dairy has never been shown to be protective uh, against osteoporosis. In fact the opposite has been shown that the um, countries around the world and even within the United States, both the countries around the world and the populations within this country that consume the most dairy foods actually have the highest rates uh, and risk for osteoporosis. Furthermore, high consumption of dairy foods has been linked to um, uh, increased risk for prostate cancer and certain forms of ovarian cancer. And prostate cancer is a major problem within the African-American community because it turns out that um, uh, it's it's more than twice as prevalent amongst African-American men, and once we develop it, we are two to three times as likely to die from it uh, as Caucasian-American men because it we tend to get more aggressive and deadly forms of the disease. So it really is a gross disservice to... Um, African-American community and other communities of color for the government to encourage them to eat foods that they don't need for their health. And then when you look at the other aspects of the dietary guidelines, again, that tend to be heavily weighted towards consuming uh, uh, animal flesh foods and um, lots of fat. Again, the government knows for a fact, because the science has been there for over 30 years, that this type of a diet will promote Excess levels of chronic disease in all populations, but particularly in communities of color, yet they still recommend these foods, um, not because it's healthier for us, but simply because they are trying to provide a market for uh, U.S. agribusiness. And that is absolutely racist. Mm. That
0: uh, That is outrageous.
1: It, it is. It, it absolutely is. Wow,
0: so there is so much more <laughs> that I would love to ask you, and uh, I know we're, we're almost at an hour, but uh, on behalf of uh, of our listeners, if people want to find out more, if they want to hear more from you, find your, your speeches, your videos, your writings, where can they go?
1: Certainly they can Google my name, um, uh, Dr. Milton Mills, and there's a number of different uh, articles that will come up, or, and they can go to YouTube. And there are several of my lectures that have been posted uh, to YouTube that will immediately come up that they can watch um, on on a number of different topics. And and, and they can also contact PCRM at PCRM.org uh, for additional information as well.
0: Great. So I'll post uh, links to PCRM and to some of the, the YouTube lectures.
1: Okay, wonderful.
0: Um, Dr. Mills, thank you so much. This has been... Just just a treat for me to to hear your uh your perspective, your erudition, the incredible amount of research you've done on this and the passion and clarity with which you present this message. I don't know any thinking person who could listen to this and not be convinced.
1: Well, thank you very much. Very kind. Very very kind words. I appreciate it.
0: Alright, well be well. I look forward to talking with you again.
1: Okay, I'll be ha- I'll be happy to come back at some point. Thank you for having me.
0: A pleasure. Take care.
1: All right.